Welcome to the Jay Martin Show. My name is Jay Martin. I'm an investor and the CEO of Cambridge House. And my guest today is Jeff Booth. Now, Jeff is the author of a book called The Price of Tomorrow, which took the macro finance world by storm in 2020. He's a first time author, but this book became the most influential book in macro finance that year and in many preceding years. And you'll find it on the must read lists of some of the most influential personalities in finance from individuals like Raul Powell and Lynn Alden, Danielle DiMartino Booth, and many, many more. But Jeff is fascinating, very, very smart. Before he was an author, he was an entrepreneur. He still is an entrepreneur. He founded a company called Build Direct, grew it from his garage up to a half a million dollar, sorry, half a billion dollar market cap. And today he sits on the board as an advisor or a founder or co-founder of about nine or 10 high growth technology companies. Very, very smart individual. Now, what we talked about today was Bitcoin and crypto and the future of this market. What is noise? What is signal? And what we should be paying attention to with a bit of a focus on inflation, because I think if you're going to look at any asset, any investment, you need to know why. And the why can't be because everybody else is doing it. That's a horrible why. But the why behind Bitcoin from Jeff's standpoint is really uh, simply put inflation, right? Now, inflation is a game that has been played for the majority of my life. And if you played the inflation game, meaning you borrowed money to buy assets, you were healthily rewarded. Specifically, let's talk about real estate. If you bought a house in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, it proved to be a smart idea to leverage yourself to the hilt, borrow money you probably couldn't afford, but get that money into an asset and then pay it back in future devalued currency. That proved to be the retirement plan for a good 30, 40 years. Now, Jeff is saying that game is changing. Now, there's a handful of reasons why, but we get into you know how the game of Monopoly is such a beautiful analogy for the game that we're playing today. You know, in Monopoly, everybody starts even. Eventually, one person acquires a few more properties or higher value properties than the rest of the board. And that's the beginning of the end as all the cash siphons into the property owner who owns the most or most valuable properties. Now, the way inflation kind of works like this from Jeff's viewpoint, and I guess I agree, is that the price of assets continues to rise. So therefore, the obstacle to enter uh, asset acquisition continues to rise. And so the number of people who can play the inflation game shrinks every year. Simultaneously, the people who are playing the inflation game successfully, i.e. those who own assets, get more and more wealthy. Now, this isn't their fault. It's not the richest fault that they're getting richer, but they are. This is a result of fiscal policy, right? As we continue to inflate the money supply, the price of assets goes up. So they became further and further out of reach from more and more people. The percentage that can afford assets goes down. Those who hold assets get richer as their assets increase in value and they become, this is wealth disparity, right? This is what's occurred. So eventually this system eats itself, right? Eventually it collapses because it becomes unsustainable for a handful of reasons. Number one, being just public dissent. If you're on the losing side of this equation and you're continually growing in numbers, you're going to get louder, more frustrated. And I get it. You know, we're seeing this right now with various expressions of civil unrest all over the world. People are waking up, they're looking at the Monopoly board and they're saying, what the f happened here? How did I get so far behind? Somebody must have cheated because we're all playing the same game. But here's the thing, only a few people know the rules and um, that's where we've landed today. So that is why in Jeff's, from Jeff's perspective, Bitcoin is the life raft. This is the exit strategy. And he doesn't say put all your eggs in that basket, but put some there, you know, he says, essentially have a non-zero position in Bitcoin. And I agree, you know, and here's the thing about that. People are rushing into cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin with 
this crazy FOMO mindset. They've got to get in now, blah, 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 that, or they completely dismiss it as something that they don't understand. And there's, there's a medium ground though, you know, and that's what people should consider from my perspective. You know, the way I invest in cryptocurrency and Bitcoin is just a very small amount of money every two weeks. And I've done that for two years. I wasn't early, right? I wasn't early to this game, but through a very small drip every two weeks, I never part with cash that I miss. If it goes to zero, my life is not compromised. Yet, it's now a significant piece of my wealth because of dollar cost averaging in every two weeks consistently. Now, consistently is the name of the game for any investment strategy uh, and asset acquisition. You know, we should practice what we can do consistently for the rest of our life. It's like fitness, right? Often people rush into the market, think they're going to find that winning trade and their life will be solved. And let me just tell you, it doesn't work that way. Uh, just like hitting the gym, if you hit it hard for a month, you know, you'll just be sore. <laughs> Maybe you'll get some results, but if you are consistent over your lifetime, that's when you get compounded results and, and real progress. So anyways, this was a fun discussion with Jeff. I love talking to this guy. So smart, so smart. And he's probably going to make you want to run out and buy Bitcoin. So police yourself and do it with caution, slowly, consistently, and sustainably, most importantly. All right. Here is Jeff Booth, the author of The Price of Tomorrow on The Jay Martin Show. Enjoy. All right. What's up, guys? Jay Martin here, investor and CEO of Cambridge House. And I'm joined right now by Jeff Booth, who is, uh, among many other things, the author of one of my favorite books, The Price of Tomorrow. And Jeff, I've had you on the YouTube channel a bunch. Welcome. Really glad that you could make the time. Yeah, thanks, Jay. It's great to be here. Great to see you again. Likewise. Yeah. And we were supposed to do this in person, but this is it's close. For anyone who's not familiar with with who you are and how you spend your time, can we just start there, really high level? Who who is Jeff Booth and how how do you spend your time? Just that, eh? um, <laughs> I, I, technology entrepreneur, spending my time mostly investing or boards uh, advising uh, different technology companies. So on on the boards, quite a few different technology companies or owner co founder of quite a few different technology companies. Yeah, so that's where I would spend the majority of my time. And how many in the portfolio right now between companies you've co-founded or have or sit on the board of? I think nine in in uh, nine boards uh, or 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 co-founded, maybe ten uh, boards are co-founded. Uh, co so that's <laughs> um, uh, and then obviously lots of other investments in technology companies. Is I, I probably see three hundred companies a year, maybe more than that. Right. Yes. Okay. And and for for background, the way I met Jeff was when you know you founded a company called Build Direct from your garage or your basement, one of the two, I believe. Yep. Basement. Yeah. Basement. Yeah. Built that into a company that generated, am I correct, half a billion dollars in sales? No, it was uh, at the peak. It was one hundred and twenty million dollars in revenue. Um, yeah. Half uh, a billion dollar market cap. Exactly. Yeah. Got it. Okay. Yeah. There we are. After that, you authored The Price of Tomorrow, which became like the most read book in macro finance of 2020. I read it two and a half times. <laughs> and, and now, so you're, you're kind of, from my standpoint, living the dream, uh, sitting on the board of a variety of like really diverse technology companies. Very cool. Some that I'm a shareholder of in the vertical farming space. Uh, I love the food tech sector and you're doing some cool things there. Let's, uh, let's jump into a couple of topics here. You know, in the past, we've spoken a lot about just like general monetary policy and, and some of the challenges that you view and you address in your book, right? I follow you on Twitter, and um, I think you've written some interesting stuff recently about 
Bitcoin becoming a better risk asset uh, or hedge, safe haven asset than real estate. And so that's the interesting place to start. I'd love to start there. So walk my audience through how that shift functions, because for my whole life, the, the trade has been, you know, borrow money, buy real estate, retire on that equity, right? And, and you think that could be compromised. So talk to me about why. Yeah, and I think for people that haven't uh, haven't read the book or haven't understood what's what's happening right now, I think we pr- probably should do a quick start uh, there and Please. then go is that, if that's okay. Please. And just these concepts are really hard to wrap our brains around because they're different than we've ever experienced. And so when when you say why real estate be a, a, a bad investment versus Bitcoin, I'm sure a whole bunch of your audience is like, come on. I'm not listening anymore. This is ridiculous. Mm. And so it's just important to say, so we live in a world where advancing technology should be freeing our time. And and that advancing technology is exponential in nature. And it's going to move into artificial intelligence and robotics and and merge into. And when that happens, the the marginal cost of production falls to, to, to almost zero. And things become free or they become ever increasingly cheaper as competition races in to to deliver us more value and we use that value that's actually how a, how a company creates value they they give more value to society by automating and bringing technology some of the best investments that i've made or founding companies is a result giving more value to society that drives that so that is the macro framework we are all living but we're measuring it from a system that must raise prices. So the credit market, if you allowed, because our entire system is based on credit, if you allowed credit to to fall, deflation to happen, natural deflation to happen, the credit would keep unwinding to the ground. So you have governments all over the world, and it doesn't really matter where they print money, but printing money, essentially diluting the money to pretend asset prices or, or to make prices go up. What's really happening is the measuring stick is being manipulated, but we live, every, we measure everything by that measuring stick. So we don't see it. So you have these two forces colliding into each other that will accelerate and accelerate and accelerate. Governments cannot stop printing because if they do, in fact, they have to exponentially increase it. Otherwise you have a deflationary spiral. And so in that, let's attach that to real estate. So the reason real estate prices have gone up is because of that printing. And we might not see it because, and if you looked at the last 20 years to offset technology's gains, you've stimulated economies before COVID. You stimulated economies by $185 trillion to grow GDP by $46 trillion. And so we often don't question the monetary system we live in. We get focused on a part of the system. And in this case, let's use real estate as a part of the system. And, and people don't ask themselves, would my real estate have gone up without $185 trillion of stimulus? Mm. They, they think real estate goes up forever. And so now carry that forward. If, if there's not more stimulus, real estate will crash and, and crash badly. And so you have more and more, but right now that people know that there's more stimulus coming. So they're levering, essentially trying to protect their money by levering into real estate. So their money isn't devalued and levering more and more and more. And the beneficiaries, people who have more real estate are winning that game more because rents go up further, society is left out. And, and but yeah, the other side of society moves to populist governments 
who then try to take that back. And because your real estate is inside a country, inside the monetary policy of the country, when that revolution or, or, or whatever redistribution comes, it's taken back because there's more people without than people with. And so, so at some point, you can question, is it next year? Is it a year after? Is it, but at some point, real estate doesn't become a safe haven in that. And if you, if you just zoom out um, to places where Venezuela used to have, used to be uh, uh, the fourth rich, richest nation by GDP, look at it today. And would you want to own real estate there? Mm. Or look at Lebanon today or look at Turkey, what's happening to Turkey, uh, Turkey today. And so what ends up happening is once you start to have currency failures because of the manipulation and because of the, the, the change to the social contract of society, most of the people left out either take it back through force, through revolution, or it's captured in text in a totally different manner. So if you now compare what's happening today that underneath kind of the foundation of money is being broken, and what would be a safe haven out of that? And you need, you need a different measuring stick that's measuring that whole system. And that's what actually Bitcoin is. So it's a system that cannot be manipulated. And if you measured your wealth by Bitcoin, what we, you, you would see is every single asset price, every single price in the world is falling by Bitcoin standards. But we're measuring the world by, by a fiat money standard. So we think mm -hmm. our prices are right, right, rising. So the natural market actually looks like what's happening on Bitcoin. Yes. Okay. And that's important context, right? Like relativity is really important. We look at the price of the assets that we hold in our, our wealth picture, right? Because you're absolutely right. So to recap some of this, like when you say we're, we're in a credit-based system, you know, yeah, it's a debt-based system that works really well as long as we're in an inflationary environment because we can borrow some cash, we can buy an asset, pay that asset back in a future, therefore devalued currency because the value of that currency has been inflated away, right? As we increase the money supply, same amount of goods we're purchasing with that. And, you know, what, what's so interesting about this to me is there's always like a few cycles of play, right? There's the near-term cycles and, and maybe more macro, longer-term cycles. And right now, if I heard you correctly, and you can tell me if I'm off base, you know, we're playing an inflationary game, a lot of us in the market, right? Because we're seeing inflation immediately in front of us, right? And that's the short-term trend, the near-term cycle, whatever you want to call that. But if we're thinking in terms of like two to three years, that, that game is probably going to work out just fine for anybody who's you know, planning to, to generate wealth off of inflation. The longer term trend that's going to eventually eat that is that technology eventually eats everything. And technology is by definition deflationary because uh, technology endeavors to give you more for less, as you said, right? And as this continues to eat our world, as we know it, the deflationary tsunami will eat the inflationary wave, correct? Correct. Um, but it's actually worse than that because it, because in going back to real estate, for example, or we get comfortable in the world we live in and we don't question outside that world. The goldfish has no idea that they're stars. 100%. And they met, and again, measuring that system from that, from that world. And so, so you have to zoom out from that world to see what's happening and what could happen here. People we used to say, take real estate for an example. Would you want to own real estate in Detroit? And oh no, that 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 city died because the the auto industry moved. Well, zoom, go look at 
San Francisco today versus two years ago, the hub of what, what people were talking about with the hub of technology, everyone's moving there. It's a total, mm -hmm. go, go look at it today. And, and people robbing, robbing high street stores, the streets look terrible. It's There's nothing they can do about it. It's a total mess. So real estate in that is, is starts to collapse mm. in that um, because, because the society fabric breaks down out of, out, out of the, out of the same thing. You can't move your real estate once it looks like that. Mm. You're stuck to a system. And if you zoom out even further, if you look at how inflationary monetary, monetary systems collapse, and if you look at to Germany in the 30s, inflationary monetary system brought in Hitler. Hitler turned a populace against the people with wealth. Yeah. Why didn't the people with wealth move when they saw it coming? What, well, these things happen incrementally, right? They, One millimeter at a time. The goldfish in the bowl. They don't notice everything that, that's happening, but and, and, and it's but it, but signposts are everywhere. But worse than that, all of the people in Germany, the wealthy people in Germany, all of their assets were in Germany, right? And they made their and and they were getting richer and richer because rents were going up. They were protected against inflation, somewhat protected against inflation because they held the assets, and 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 that protection doesn't last. Because there's because it take it, there's a negative externality to a huge part of the population mm. that comes and takes it back, and and you have these societal breakdowns and you have these resets of currencies, and so whether you like Bitcoin, whether you don't like Bitcoin, I would say from from uh, for anybody listening to this, I implore you to learn more about it and get off zero. Mm. Just get off zero. Get off zero. So you start learning what it really is. When because you say when you say get off zero, you mean have have a non-zero position in non-zero position. Own some. So, so and and don't own it on an exchange. Own it on a hard wallet. Um, and learn and learn why that that's so important. Uh, you may not just save your family, but you may by doing so also bring a, a whole bunch of people over the bridge or, or, and help help with you. So you know you mentioned you know the negative externality. Thinking this through, it's it's interesting because the inflation game only asset generate wealth off the inflated value of the asset because we relative we measure value relative to the dominant currency. Right now, it's U.S. dollars, and you know it's it's a good strategy, been a good strategy for my whole life. It's still a winning strategy, you know, perceived to be today. As that game proceeds forward, first of all, you mentioned like winners and losers in this, because if you own the asset, you feel like you're winning. If you don't, you feel like you're losing. But every day, the value of that asset increases. I'm a homeowner and I'm benefiting from this right now. I live in a town 45 minutes outside of a major city. These are the hotspots that are blowing up right now because people want to be close to, but not in a city. And so we're looking at our home value like, holy smokes, we never saw this coming. But what that really means to me is, there's more and more barriers to entry for those who want to get in the asset game, right? And so that obstacle from between the winners and the losers, I mean, when I say that just, you know, those that own assets and those that don't, it's becoming harder and harder to see how you could enter that winner's circle by acquiring an asset because the value is just every day becoming more and more out of reach, right? So, and again, these concepts, be, because we live in this monetary system that we don't measure the, the, the abuse of that. Inflation is that. Nobody votes for inflation. Right. It's a, it, we, we believe that there must be inflation. We actually believe a productivity, a productive society requires inflation. And it's simply untrue. 
So we believe, we believe, we build a monetary system based on theft. We don't question the, the theft itself. We question the rate of theft. 2% theft is okay. Right. 5% is bad. <laughs> so, yeah. so but, but it's actually, it's, it's mind numbing that nobody questions, is a productive economy? Does it require a theft built into, into it? Because that theft has a loser on the other side. Now, to, to mm -hmm. visualize what's, ha what's happening, it's just simplify it and you say, take a monopoly board. And you know what ends up happening in monopoly, a game of chance. And if you're lucky and you land on the right things early, you collect more properties. And as the game goes around and around and around, it creates an, it's a positive feedback loop for the property owners and a negative feedback loop for the non-property owners. Yeah. So th their life gets harder and harder as they go around the board and they can't pay their rents anymore. And then eventually somebody kicks over the game because they get so frustrated yeah. <laughs> and pieces fly everywhere or the game resets and everybody gets another chance. Now imagine a game, you and me, I have, lo I have lots of real estate. I have lots of, and imagine a game that can never end. It just keeps on going. And, and, and people all have all these assets. And if you have one house and I have 10 or 20 or 100, my magnitude of win is so much more than you. Mm. And if you don't have a house, the, that feedback effect that goes around this. Now imagine that game going around and around and around. And you're designing a system to be able to, to ensure those people that have the real estate have it forever and it keeps moving up. Yeah. And you're ensuring the negative feedback loop from the bottom of the population as well so now the bottom of the population they go past go and 200 dollars doesn't get them around the board and they're living on the street so what do they do what is what do politicians do i know let's print more money and let's give them 400 dollars to push prices up higher so they can't get around the board these negative externalities both positive and negative externalities keep feeding back until the game resets in a different way and, and normally that game, if you look around the world through a long history, arc, arc of history lens, um, normally that game resets through revolution and war. My hope, yeah. my, my hope is, and that's why I've become a, a, a very vocal or a proponent of Bitcoin and advocate of Bitcoin is, it is the only thing I've seen. And, and, I, and, I, and I, it's not that I don't have an open mind to others. It is the only thing I've seen that can get us to the other side into that, that stops, stops what's going to come naturally from this system. Yeah, I hope you're right. It's, you know, because what you're describing is like the origin of dissent, right? You're right. And we're, we've watched this over the last 10 years, the rise of populism, yeah. as people essentially wake up and they look at the monopoly board and they're like, what the hell happened here? How did I get so far behind? And or the other, or the, or, or the other side, take the other side or the other side, when those people rise up and they riot, they, they break, uh, break windows or they, they, they take, uh, they, they rob, uh, what does the other side do? The, the wealthy side, they, they actually empower government more. Of course. To, to hire more police force. Protect the game. To be able to protect themselves. Yeah, of course. So, so government grows and grows and grows. And as government grows and grows and grows individual rights and freedoms are taken away by that growth. So that's exactly what happens. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're all in the game of self-preservation to a degree, right? We're going to look out for our families, look out for our well-being. And no matter what end of the game you're on, at the end of the day, you might 
unknowingly push ethics aside because you're, you're going to take care of those around you, right? You're going to go for self-preservation. So, so that's a really important uh, point. And you know, I covered it in the book as well. So if you think about game theory, um, and you think about how you think about things, we think about ourselves first. If you look at the photograph of a whole bunch of people, you don't focus on the other people first. You focus on yourself. You're always in your own mind. Mm. Yourself first, then your family, then your then your immediate friends and um, and people close to you, then your community, then your then that community. You could measure it a whole bunch of different ways, whether it's it's the Bitcoin community or the real estate community or what. And then, but but friends from the, from that a broader group of friends, and then your nation or your region or your nation. And, and so what ends up happening when that self-preservation comes to us, if you look at any country where, where you've destroyed this process, what does law look like in that process? And people, what people do is they'll do anything to survive. Yeah. They'll do anything to save their family. They'll do it. And so you, 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 you have this breakdown um, of society, of the societal contract effectively because of, because of, of our needs and wants. Our, of our own motivations in that. Which oddly enough is like a vote of confidence in humanity, depending on how you look at it. It's how resilient we are. We will do anything to survive. That's why we're still here, right? Yeah. That can that can lead to nefarious activities, but like at the end of the day, it speaks to our species ability, our resilience and, and anti-fragility. Well, you used that. to have a, um, and this is in game theory, you'd get to a shelling point. And the shelling point is 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 a point where the nuclear weapons is a shelling point. So when what is multiple, that? What is a shelling point? What it, what it is is game theory. Uh, it, what it hits a point where where if two people have nuclear weapons, then then you don't press the button because it ends humanity. Got it. Yeah. Um, so it gets to because we we compete for resources. We compete for resources, uh, and 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 no matter. It, our competition takes us to that point. And so today, if you if you looked at the arms race, it's not around nuclear, it's about hypersonic weapons, it's about space weapons, it's about a whole bunch of other things. As as global tries to economies or, or regions try to compete for that. As they compete for it, what are they really doing? They're trying to say our individual, our our way of life is more important than the way that that, that uh, their way of life. So China. Has a different idea than um, than the U.S. and China is doing the same thing to protect their way of life, the way mm -hmm. of centralization and, and and control, and this is the way we do it. But it but if you just look through the competition of humanity move moving up, that's and and why we will fall into the trap and say and we'll protect our state is a state will say if they invade us, they'll take your real estate or they'll take your your, your way of life. And so we'll fall into a trap and, and, and go to war and revolution and everything else to pr pr protect that. Now, that shelling point around a competitive, um, competitive destruction on Bitcoin actually moves to the opposite side. So competition on Bitcoin, because, it's, because it brings pricing down. And, it lets the, and, and I mean, and it brings energy pricing down. All energy is going to be priced in Bitcoin. I'm going to back off. I'm going to take it just a tangent here. Yeah. In 1971, the U.S. dollar would have failed through, through the 70s. It would have failed. But what, instead of failing when they went off gold, what they did is they, they co-opted through Saudi Arabia at first. Essentially, we will protect 
you with arms and all oil globally will be priced in US dollars. And what that created is, is another run for the US dollar is it created essentially energy priced in, in US dollars mm. in all energy. And, and, and look at the nations that stepped out of that system and said, I'm not going to press, I'm not going to price oil in, in, in US dollars. They were excluded from the financial system of the world. Mm-hmm. And so you used war, you used a war machine to es- essentially price energy in US dollars. And when you did that, there was a benefit for US, there was a benefit for Canada, there was benefit for a whole in, in that, that, in, that by pressing buttons, essentially manipulating money, you got free energy and nobody else did. Mm. And so it created, again, that competition created a, a powerful advantage. And, and how did you protect it? You protected it through, you had to defend that energy protection through a war machine to be able to, to keep shipping lines open, open and, 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 and ensure people price in, in US dollars. Yeah. Now you have energy sources that are more and more distributed and they're changing faster. And Bitcoin mining is moving to volcanoes or geothermic and, and clean energy sources that are, that are moved. So, so you have an energy change and bitcoin is incentivized to drive that change connecting the dots to that what's happening that is that drives lower and lower cost and it drives and it drives a competition to lower and lower costs that can't be manipulated that makes sense so you can't change the currency value you can't create more units and hurt somebody else yeah so so because bitcoin is fixed there's 100 million satoshis per bitcoin yeah fixed at 21 million uh, bitcoin and that change of fixing currency so you could never change it mm-hmm. means that, that all of the technological technological gains get distributed broadly to society as prices fall okay why people can't see that is they're measuring their their life in 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 a different currency, but you can see it really clearly if you measure your life in Bitcoin. You can see my house fell my my house fell by half this year, and ever and, and a whole bunch of other things have fallen by more this year. But we're so used to that other contract now. Taken back to the other thing I was talking about that shelling point. What that means is as people now the early people on Bitcoin win more of the share. But by paving the road and actually in ensuring that, that that change is happening, that means all innovation that is getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper naturally falls on that system. And as it falls lower and lower in price, then no matter who you are on the planet, even if you hate Bitcoin, you benefit from Bitcoin. You Because just like on your phone, you benefit from a flashlight on your phone and a camera on your phone and, and, a, and, um, and a calculator on your phone and a million apps on your phone that you don't pay for mm-hmm. they come with the phone because they've the marginal cost of production has fallen to a spot that there is no way to for an entrepreneur to go in and create a, cal- a new calculator app that can create a whole bunch of money right yeah right? And, and that same thing happens globally on everything as a result this new economic standard that changes how we think about things but it's very early it's it's really early in that transition and so people can't see it people are still measuring a system from a system from yeah from exactly from a system that is that is going to fight tooth and nail to retain itself as anybody in power does right back to your 
hope that this doesn't end in some kind of revolution or a war, but you know, who's going to give up their power seat willingly? You know, I, I, I think about this. It's interesting to hear you talk about the importance of having a non-zero Bitcoin position, almost from the standpoint of like, that's the life raft, right? There's, there's going to be a crazy storm over here. That's probably coming, right? And right now, I, I think that it's becoming more difficult for individuals to think for themselves because we are constantly bombarded uh, with fear narratives, right? And in, in uncertainties and humans, like, I mean, the last 18 months have been tough for everybody. You know, granted, you know, I've probably had a, I'm in a smaller town, I've got a house, like I'm in a good spot, all things considered. But when you remove certainty from the human brain, it, everything changes. Your, your base level anxiety skyrockets, right? When you don't know, you know, if the store is going to be open in two months, if what life's going to look like in a month, that's very, very challenging for humans to just live and exist naturally. And so, but when you keep people on their heels, they're far less likely to think for themselves and think creatively, right? And that's what's occurring right now. And so, you know, I think we're all more vulnerable to whatever narrative we're getting sold because we're in this fear scarcity mindset right now. And that's actually why I challenge people that even if you didn't like Bitcoin, just to explore it, because because what you might not realize is you're doing exactly what uh, you think everybody else is, and you are too. Um, and that fear paralyzes and makes us terrible at decisions. Hundred percent. And and so you have you have essentially corruption and money, and all money is is an abstract uh, concept of our time. So people don't actually want more money. They want more of what they think money will get them. Sure. More experiences. Some people think if I have more money, I'll have more power over other people or people will love me more. But they don't really want more units of money. Okay. What they want is what are the feelings that they think money will get them. Mm. So it's an abstract concept for our time. And so if you manipulate that abstract concept and essentially destroy our time, and you must manipulate that concept more and more because the system demands it or it'll collapse. Credit-based system, you have to keep going. You have to have more and more and more manipulation all the time. Then essentially in, in a base contract of our life, everything revolves around that trade of our time. And if you have manipulation in it, you must have manipulation everywhere else. Corruption in money equals corruption everywhere else. But it keeps society in this fear-based mentality. Mm. And as they get, go into fear, they can't see options because it, it's easy for me to say this it, living on the other side of this. In fact, one of the reasons I wrote the book is somebody that benefits from this system, technology, everything else needs to be able to put these pieces together because it's, it's arguably not going to be the person that's living on the street that's going to be able to see this and, 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 and write a book about uh, how, how they saw it. So it's somebody that has kind of an open mind and not fear, no fear about it at, at all and so mm. at, from that you open more doors and you understand okay how could this look and you and, and you can build a path to the other side if you're worried about if you're working two jobs and you don't have a house and your rent just went up by 20 percent, and you're worried about that will you have that job in a year how would you look at life and yeah. if a and if a politician came in and said it's those people's fault over there. I'm going to give you more money. 
and I'm going to give you more money by robbing you more, by creating more. I'm going to print more money to, to give you more money. You might, you'd believe it and you'd live in that fear more and more and more. So that's what's happening today in society, unfortunately. Yeah. And, and people want to find that enemy, right? Because inflation is not understood by most people as theft, which it is if you're on the losing side of that equation. You own the asset, you're benefiting. You don't own the asset, you're paying for it, right? Right. And that's why people wake up, look at the monopoly board, and they're like, how, how did I end up back here? How are they so far ahead of me? And then they come to the conclusion, somebody must have cheated because we're all playing the same game. Totally. The and then it's easy to point the finger, right? Because you're like, who's, who's fault? Who did this to me, right? Exactly. It's, easy, it's easier to blame. We don't blame systems. We blame, we blame people. 100%. Yes. So, 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 and this is a system problem. Mm. And, and everybody's looking for the person to blame. Because we can understand people, right? Systems are complex. Exactly. So no, people don't want to question this. So they want to look at the person. They say it, it's it's his, her fault. It's that politician's fault. It's this. It's a system dynamic problem. They can't. Mm. And that's actually why, going back to Bitcoin, you you have to have a different system, a parallel system that is building to be able to change. You can't change this from the system. It has to be a, it has to be a different system. And there's no government. Try to think of and, and Pierre's become a friend because he's read my book a, a bunch of times as well. But but he'll he'll talk about um, and and one of the things he'll talk about is inflation. He'll do a really good job talking about inflation. But sorry, who is this? Pierre Polyov. Okay. But in that system change from in, uh, um, from inflation, he would not get elected by saying, "I'm going to I'm going to stop all printing, and and we're going to have a deflationary collapse because of it." No. Because everything would fail. Every bank would fail. Everything yeah. would fail. Yeah. So, and, and so given that you can't stop printing and printing ends in, in, in revolution war and a really ugly mess and stopping printing ends in inflationary collapse and a, and, and a mess, then you must have a parallel system that can, that can slowly transition from one system to another. And if you look at Bitcoin through that lens and you look at the rate of growth of Bitcoin, it is growing faster than the internet. But it's the internet today, if you looked at Bitcoin growth, it's the internet in 1997. And, and so what came after 1997 on the internet and how many people saw what the internet would become in 1997? I would say very relatively few. Um, and, and so that's how people are looking at Bitcoin right now. They're looking at it through, through the lens of, uh, of, of misunderstanding what's coming and projecting current forward instead of what's coming forward. What's up, everybody? Sorry for the interruption. Quick note, if you enjoy these conversations, I publish a weekly newsletter and it's free where I share my top takeaways lessons learned, and any action steps I might be taking as a consequence in the market. Sign up at cambridgehouse.com. I publish every week and it's free. Now back to the conversation. Okay, so there's some really important things in here. Number one, I'll just share, it doesn't matter really who I have on my show who's been in the game a long time and has credibility and a great track record, you know, but it doesn't matter, right? Everyone's coming to the same conclusion that we're in the end game here, right? And, and what happens next and, and how it happens, there's variables there. No one knows with certainty. What 
what Jeff is saying is exactly why. And here's what I want to communicate to people right now is that this doesn't mean you need to rush out, find a pile of money and get it into Bitcoin. That's not, you can do whatever you want, right? My strategy just, and people, my audience knows this has been, I dollar cost average in and I do without fail every two weeks. And I have, and I wasn't early to this game at all. I started two years ago investing in Bitcoin, right? And, and it was just, immaterial amount of cash every two weeks and I just push that direction. And and now it's obviously with the appreciation, it's actually a much bigger percentage of my net worth than I anticipated it being, but didn't happen overnight. Right. And and it's something that I will need to continue for the next 10 years. That's my game plan. This is not a two-year play, right? This is just part of the lifestyle now. You know, and so it's there for me. And it should be there for you. And it doesn't have to be intimidating. Right. Whatever you can part with every two weeks or every month. Maybe, maybe look at that as a way to enter if you haven't yet. The second thing that you shared is that, you know, the network effect. Well, you shared a bunch, but the second thing I want to touch on was you compared 1997, you know, the dawn of the internet, and that's maybe where we're at in, in the adoption of crypto. Now, what's, what's important about that is that people, a lot of people, I think, look at crypto as like, where can I get that big hit? What's the, what's the altcoin that's going to show me this rise and people get lucky. There's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, if you had just stuck with like four or five names in 1997, big internet companies and hadn't looked at all the startups, you know, you'd have retired incredibly wealthy today, just betting on Amazon, Google, et cetera. Right. And so I guess where I'm going with this, Jeff, is like, it takes a lot of work to be good at the speculation. But if you're just sticking to the main assets, right, the steadfast uh, major players, the infrastructure plays in the crypto world. You're, that's why you talk about Bitcoin. I haven't seen an altcoin that that has the the type of benefit both to society and to what we're talking about here, even if it, in money that can match Bitcoin. Not not even close. In the short term, lots. But if you but if you think about okay, we we live in a system that must manipulate money. And, um, and what would that system look like from a stock market perspective? What would that system look like? And by the way, if you look back through history, you can see this. So when you manipulate money at this degree, what ends up happening is you create a population of everybody's trying to lever. They're trying to get out of that system. They don't know how. And if you looked at the network effect on altcoins around NFTs and, okay, I'm going to sell my art and I'm going to, and, and, and in this case, Let's imagine I have 20 million. I, I'm one of the first in Ethereum. I have a, and I have a, 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 a $100 million wallet in Ethereum. And altcoins and NFTs is a really great way to, to get a whole bunch of people to buy. I could create another wallet, sell that to myself for 20 million. The whole world thinks, wow, these NFTs are selling for $20 million and everybody races in and creates more and more of them racing to, and then, and then other co coins come onto the market and say, oh, they're making money here. And the entire thing is caused by you're printing so much money and people are racing to a system to try to escape it and gaming a system to try to uh, es escape it all the while. Uh, and we won't be able to get into it in this depth in this talk uh, in this talk but it, but but bitcoin was designed for security and decentralization and by designing for security and centralization it could be 
the ultimate apex predator to money itself. Governments can't stop it. They try to shut it down. It grows faster. Every it, it, There's no marketing department. There's nobody. It, it, people are spending their own time hardening it, making it hard, bringing more people onto it. That is growing like crazy as a store of value. Layer two, which does not need to be optimized for security, to be optimized for speed, Lightning Network. And why El Salvador use Lightning Network? And now you can start paying for things in Bitcoin. And trade is opening up globally. Individuals can trade back and forth. I can, I can send for 0. 0.0002 cents, uh, $100 million on Bitcoin um, to somebody in India right this second. And nobody can stop me. Mm. Um, and so, so trade starts to emerge. One of my businesses in India took three weeks to wire a six-figure uh, six-figure money, and it cost me a fortune to wire that money. I'm wondering where it is in that three weeks. Um, I don't need to do that anymore. Yeah, um, I can I individually trade on, on this new network, and so that Lightning Network has a new network effect that's reinforcing on Bitcoin, and it's it's very early, but it's growing exponentially. I think the growth on Lightning Network is growing four percent a week. Mm. As more and more people embed on this uh, embed on this system so if i looked at all the altcoins i don't see how you could solve this from the from from those altcoins i don't see anything in them that i would say that now i want to connect a different piece to what, what you said i think bitcoin itself is like investing in the layer one, it's like in being able to invest not in Amazon. It's like being able to invest in TCP IP. It's and all the value on top of it is being is being layer two and a whole bunch of companies. And this is just like, for context, basic internet protocol. Basic internet protocol. That's what we're talking that's about. What, yeah. That's what essentially you essentially creative destruction has come from money itself. Yeah. And and that protocol is like TCP IP. And then there's another protocol under, or there's another layer on top of it, lightning, liquid, a whole bunch of different layers that are that are adding more functionality onto the base protocol. Mm. So why a lot of people didn't see the internet coming is because it, because in 1997, it would take 10 minutes to download a cat video. Yeah. And the tech and, and the layer and the and the thing that speeded that sped that up and created a whole bunch more value and companies took advantage of it was on top of that network as the network evolved more people brought to the network so now compare the transition that society is going through and you think about and so people are worried about okay what what, what if bitcoin collapses a system and everything goes to bitcoin to, uh, today i can't spend my money how do i pay bills to grocery stores and everything else and today that would be a valid concern and that would be a valid concern like in in 1999 amazon's own selling books or books and toys and a couple of things and everybody knows and if you held on to it at that time um you took could have taken five dollars and and into what is it today with the value today i have no idea i don't know big stocks but yeah but 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 if if you held up uh, uh, if you held it today that through that entire time through lots of ups and downs it would have gone from five dollars to whatever the number is today very few people would have held it up against that volatility. $3,300. to $3,300. There's probably stock splits in, in there as well. So, but most people wouldn't have held it because they would have seen there's 
Walmart's better. Sears is better. All of these other things. There's no way this bookstore, they were measuring technology through a bookstore lens instead of what it would become. Mm. Now think about the transition for society. If all retail stores failed in 1999 and it was only Amazon selling books, where would you get your food? And, And so you would have societal collapse and and you would no no place to buy your food and so it couldn't have so when i said when i talk about a transition from one system to another and the people who go first on that bridge are building the transition yes they gain more wealth but by paving the way on the walk by building that bridge they're actually building the bridge to the other side so all of society walks across the bridge mm. and and so today if sears fails when sears failed Nobody had a nobody had a problem. They failed because nobody needed them. Nobody needed them because Amazon yeah. offered more services and more people are uh, shopping there. Yeah, and, and so that's that's what I suspect will ha- happen between between what it, currencies used to look like or what they look like today, and the world we live in the way they look like today, mm-hmm. and where we're moving to the to in the future. So, what do you make of you know Raul Paul is a guy who a friend of yours been on my show a handful of times. You know, he's he's shifted his focus to Ethereum largely by just ch- comparing charts and saying this is okay. So, so what's going on there? What do you see? So, so Raul read my book. I think he read my book three three times or four times, and he, he reached out every time. And, and yeah. it, you know what you said, you read it two and a half times. What I hear in that is every time I pick up new information in in this book, and one of the things that Raul picked up, and actually a lot of what framed his entire exponential where things are going are you as you know from my book from talking to me from and so that that frame of reference i think the thing that and i really like Rao, but i think the thing we disagree on because he's not he's not a technologist he's not um and the network effect on on ethereum i don't think is a stable network effect because Mm -hmm. because a network effect what it has to do to be a stable network effect is it needs to grow more value for all participants. And it has to keep doing that. So Bitcoin has a network effect that does that. And the network effect that you see on Ethereum, that network effect essentially increases gas fees. Why it keeps changing, why you have a foundation in the middle of it that says, trust us, we'll change it to whatever the market needs instead of a protocol that (laughs) doesn't have a foundation. Yeah, You're trusting people with everything built on top of it, that have to change their mind because of the way the system is designed and they have to keep changing their mind. And so it doesn't make the protocol for, for now, well, and you can imagine how many companies come to me to uh, help me with this NFT project, help me with this. And so I see the massive type of wealth that people are trying to build on there. Mm-hmm. And I can understand why it would look like a network effect. Just like when I lived through the... 99 bubble 2000 bubble in, in in technology everybody thought eyeballs was a network effect i get more eyeballs and they and the amount of money racing to that it looked like that at the time but it was really a ponzi scheme now out of that there was a whole bunch of real, real value created of companies that were strong network effects creating the creating stronger and stronger with each additional user mm. but a lot went went broke when i look at a lot of the stuff in the altcoin world, I just I, I see experiments that must change, 
And then now, now think about if I own an NFT on top of one of those experiments that must change, or if I, if my gas fees go up like, like crazy on, on top of my, essentially my tax to the system, they have to go up on that there. What if protocol fails? What happens to my NFT that I just spent all that money for? Mm -hmm. And, and so, so, so through that lens, I think we just have a disagreement. He's looking at a, at a, a rate of growth that, that is caused by manipulation of money and people trying to get in, get out really fast. And he's yes. thinking that's a network effect. Yes. It's not a stable network effect. Okay. I'm with you there. I'm following you. And that's the, that's the perspective, right? You come at it from the standpoint of a technologist, technology entrepreneur, Ralph from the money management side, right? So it's yeah. different points of view. Yeah, and I can, and, and I can understand how that, that tricks a whole bunch of people. Yeah. And, and, uh, I've actually haven't had this conversation with Ralph, but, um, but I, 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 should, I will. Should. Yeah. I love <laughs> yeah. it. Okay. Now I have to ask because you mentioned, yeah, you're getting shown a lot in the NFT space. I'm now seeing suddenly a bunch of deal flow in the metaverse space, right? And super, super vague business plans, um, <laughs> obviously, because, you know, fools rush in, right? So what are you seeing that has teeth? Are you seeing anything that has teeth? Are you engaged in any projects in the metaverse that you're excited about? Investors who are getting pitch deals right now, should they be just taking a hard pass, looking for specific business models or what strikes you? So I haven't seen anything in there that uh, that for me grabs my attention. That could be a long term service of value. Yeah, I've seen lots. Okay. But like you said, there's it, that's not to say that they're not uh, that there's nothing there. It's just I haven't seen uh, I haven't seen it yet. And so there's a lot of hype in this space. Yeah. And um, and 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 when there's hype, people can make a lot of money in. Um, well, there, well, well, there's hype. It's just you need to go know when to get it and then get out. I'm typically not an investor in things like that. I need to believe in the underlying fundamentals that 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 drive a real business over time. Um, so I'm not typically a short term. I'm not a trader. Yes. And 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 so I haven't seen anything yet that is that that it would be worth my time or money investing in. Okay. And you haven't seen anything that's got your attention, but are there any ideas in your mind that like, but if somebody were to do this in my brain, that makes sense. Oh, like thousands. Okay. I, 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 my brain's on fire. There's so many different opportunities because if you think about the protocol layer, Bitcoin specifically, it is and then lightning layer too. If you, if you think about some of the things that are, that are happening, Technology changes the rules, and we don't notice it happening. Essentially, because it takes a monopoly, and the monopoly favors very few, and it crushes it by reducing the cost base, like by an order of magnitude. Let's call it a ten times reduction in cost base or ten times value difference. So, if you looked at, okay, say, Lightning Network, and say the cost base to be able to transfer money around the world. It has to go through this credit-based system, bank to bank to bank, and all of the people in between there. And now you have a system that's one-to-one -one that takes that cost base and eradicates it. You could see through that lens why it might be, why the people that are that are benefit the most from that monopoly, including us in, in first world nations, wouldn't see the technology because, because we use Visa, it's easy, we could go down the street, bank but in El Salvador, 
when that same transaction costs them 20%, it's not easy. And people are unbanked and we're all around the world where they're unbanked. So where do you think a technology like that would be embedded first? Um, and so what's happening that is that is being embedded all across the globe at that, at that level. Now, if I'm a business and I have, and I'm paying a bit, most businesses pay at least two and a half percent to Visa just to, to be able to take money. And I can add uh, Lightning Network uh, and I can take, take money for 0%. What might I do? And then if I if I if I do that, and then on top, and then I can give my customers more value to pay in Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. What might they do? Mm-hmm. And so you start to merge. Now, you know, in my book, I talked about how these monopolies are constructed from a network effect design. Where they use use YouTube as an example. Sure. So YouTube is you create a way to track content. And the content creation out of that, uh, so more and more people create content, which you put advertising on top of, and you give the content producers 1% of that revenue, half a percent of the revenue. Right. The more content producers, the more users find them because they're, they're all finding unique content. Mm-hmm. It, it goes on forever. And the content producers, the bar keeps going up higher and higher because most of the content never gets seen. Yeah. And, and, and so they take they're a lot of times they're more and more radical and they're spending more and more on a platform to be able to try to get seen, mm-hmm. to be able to get that take rate of the 1%. Yeah. 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 And to be able to monetize that whole structure, you have to have advertisers that are coming in and funding that. And most of the advertising revenue goes to YouTube. Yes. On, Light, on Lightning Network, you could do the exact same thing, collapse that net, entire network. And if content producers, are the ones that get value anyways, you could redistribute the rules and you could say, instead of giving 1%, we do need to operate a business, we need to be profitable, but we're gonna give you 90% of the revenue that you make forever. And we're gonna make, make this, uh, and then where would content producers start to move to? That 90%. As content, and as content start, producers started to make more money from that system, more user, uh, it, so it would drive a network effect. More people would come in to see content producers and find other content producers. Mm-hmm. And you could rebuild on a different structure, different foundation, the entire thing we see today at a way lower cost structure that empowers content providers. Artists, same thing. So, so you're going to see a disruption again of, of countless businesses that can't compete on an, on the old rails that were designed around around the old rails and had to be inefficient on those old rails is going to move to new ra- new rails on Bitcoin. Mm, okay. So yeah, I've been trying to wrap my mind around like what the, what the use case for the metaverse is because tons of hype, everybody's talking about it, yada, yada, yada. I get excited. I want to know what's going on here. I hopped into Decentraland, walked around a little bit, you know, and the ideas that I hear now are like, oh, well, wouldn't it be neat? Like this is the next generation of what you and I are doing, right? Instead of you and I doing this on Zoom, we could be in a room doing it together. And in theory, that sounds kind of cool, but I'm like, that's not it. That's just not it. You know, would I rather sit in a virtual room with your avatar than do this? Like, I don't know if I would, you know, what's the advantage there, right? But that's like the the obvious low-hanging fruit. Oh, here's what it could do. Like, I get that's what it could do, but that's not what it's going to do. That's not what's going to change the game, right? Yeah, exactly. The And some of that will, if you think about this interaction, it's kind of a 2D interaction that 
that will make it way more powerful. It'll feel real. You attach the, what's happening in the gaming world to that, and it will provide a whole bunch more value that we can't actually even see today. So right. there are there are businesses in there. And there's some virtual reality, what's coming in virtual reality, which may replace how we think about our phone and integrate to, to so there's tons of stuff coming in, into that space. It's just I haven't seen something today that that offsets my bar is pretty high for an investment today because i'm measuring everything about against bitcoin and so i have to see a rate of return and adjusted for the risk of everything else and realize that some of these will go to zero that would be it would exceed that and so my bar is pretty high when you say you measure it against bitcoin do you mean to say that it's got to compete with bitcoin as a place for your capital yeah 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 important to okay okay yeah. So what do you make of these real estate deals and super yachts that are being sold in the metaverse? Is this just crazy speculation? Normal part of any frothy cycle. It's got to happen, right? A hundred percent. It's just yeah. got to happen. It's got yeah. to gotta happen. It's, it's part, part, of, of it. part of a cycle. So uh, one of the companies that, uh, that I'm involved in, um, I don't know if you know this, Addy. You know, yeah, you know of course. That. Yeah. It's fractional real estate investing. But it, it, what it effectively creates is the real verse, right? Because, because you're that the, those real estate plays are actually being if you see what people should sign up for their app that's coming up out in uh it's coming out shortly it's incredible you get a rate of return you get but you're connecting real economic value and you're allowing anybody to anybody to participate in that real economic value and you can play with this game kind of on your on your phone so so it, that that's a really powerful business model and do I have that right? Is that is that fractional real estate investing? Is that the yeah? So so essentially, you re- reduce the cost structure of real estate investing, so people could invest. Nobody invests a dollar, but you could invest uh, as little as a dollar into a real estate project um, that that normally it would take millions of dollars to be able to invest in that real estate project, and most people were locked out. Of it. Yeah. And so what the, what the company did is through technology took down the cost to be able to do that and same thing that's happening a whole bunch of lp or gps are racing in to to addy because because addy has so much money to be able to deliver to the uh to these through offering the advantage to to individuals through offering to people who are disadvantaged and so it creates a way to get into real estate and, and what i like about that is most people when they're in real estate they're all into one thing they're leveraged so this provides natural diversity. I think there's going to be 40 odd properties launched this year, this year. So people are getting re- returns. People are getting quarterly dividends out of real estate that they're buying onto this app. It's just all into their app and wallet. It's really powerful. Interesting. I have to ask though, Jeff, how do you hold that against your deflation thesis? If So, so I actually love that you, you asked. I suspect, so... I know where the market's going, but I suspect governments aren't going to allow it to go there. And so there's a whole bunch of people that are con- are getting worse and worse and worse out of out of this. And this system allows those people to participate in real estate. And and those people are seeing this participation mm-hmm. in a different way than they ever ever could could before. So I still think if you if you fast forward where this go- goes, Bitcoin has to be a part of the portfolio. Mm-hmm. And, and and over time you'll see deflation, but 
governments can't stop printing money. They're going to keep doing it. They're going to keep doing it. And, and, and so this is a, is a way for a bunch of people to get yield. They can make income from, from, from a system like this and, and, and mitigate their risk from being all into one thing. Yeah, without having to find access to a million dollars to buy a home. Right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, they can they can get a horse in the race. So it's exactly. democratizing home ownership. Exactly. Essentially. Okay, very cool. All right. Look, you know, I, I want to uh I want to talk to you about something completely different, and that's writing your book. So for anybody watching this, we're pivoting now <laughs> to a very personal interest of mine. I'm using the next 12 minutes that we got here very selfishly. Uh, so I, I author a weekly newsletter, Jeff, and it's one of my favorite things that I do, right? I essentially have conversations like this with people like you. I get to sit on my takeaways, debrief on my notes, and then I spit out an article once a week to my audience and just share like what, what this got me thinking about. Sometimes it's my biggest lessons. Sometimes it just like adds fuel to a thought already in my brain. And it's, it's like an op-ed that I share every week and I love writing it, right? I love that. And so I'm writing an ebook right now, and it's more or less done. I figured it'd be like a good trial to see what the um, project of authoring a, f- a proper book would be, right? Time investment, uh, the editing process, all this stuff. And it's, you know, a 23-page book. Once I'm done editing, maybe it'll be 19 pages. I usually cut things back, right? Maybe less. So, you know, for some reason, on my like, you know, I've got my one-page plans for life, 10-year goals, three-year goals, all this stuff. For some reason, a really important goal of mine is to author a book. I just love the idea of authoring a formal book. And I, I feel like, um, you know, as I go through this, this, this business that I run now, having conversations for a living, I get more excited about various ideas that I want to share my perspective on. You weren't an author before you wrote, wrote uh, The Price of Tomorrow, right? You were an entrepreneur, right? So, you know, I've got a million questions for you, but talk to me, Jeff. Like, I, I, I'm considering this endeavor. Should I consider it, right? If I go forward, so, should I be? Yeah, please. So the I, I, a big part of it is the why, and do you have a compelling message that is that is different? So, or is and it kind of is it about you, or is it about the message? Hmm. And so for me, in that in in that, I didn't want to write a book for ten years. You, uh, I've been talking about what what I wrote in that book, but nobody it, like it just wasn't being listened. I could not believe that the world wasn't seeing this, and and where the world would go if they didn't see, see it. So I, I really didn't want to write a book. I felt compelled to write a book and, and had to, it took about a year. It was a process that it was, a, it, it was an entrepreneurial process. I knew nothing about writing a book. So what do you, what do you do? You investigate. I'm, I'm curious when I don't know something I want to. So I investigated everything about writing a book. I made a bunch of mistakes. I first hired a ghostwriter. Um, it was, it was terrible. Um, I paid a whole bunch of money to, but to, to end that and, and use nothing so that it was a false start. Then I, um, because I didn't want to, I didn't realize how much time it would take and how much brain time it would take, investigation time and everything else. I would wake up in the middle of the night. I would write, I would write a paragraph. I would sit for four hours sometimes um, and I'd get nothing out because I was also building three, four, five different businesses at the same time. Okay. Too. So, so, but, um, but I, it had to come out. Um, but, it, and it was very much an entrepreneurial process. Now, today, fast forward to, uh, to what happened. 
if uh, and, and I didn't even know this, but the, the amount of books it sold is staggering how many global uh, sales it's had. It's, it's in the top 500 um, of 12 million books on, and on Amazon. Of 12 million books. Most, most authors get 230 uh, sales. Um, and they, and, and if you just do that long tail, it looks like artists, but things that really grab attention that, that get people talking about something else can, I, I guess, just have a way of uh, unfolding. Now, I would say even in that book, had COVID not happened and the, the acceleration of, uh, of money printing, maybe my book would have been not seen. But I again, I didn't write it to get seen. I got, I wrote it because I had this had to come out. It had to come out. This is the lessons uh, lessons learned on it. Um, the stuff you write, maybe you're way better than me because you do it. But uh, but the stuff I write wrote that I thought was exceptional, I would look back in a month later and go, "This is terrible. I cannot believe I wrote this and I thought it was good." Process. I just kept on iterating, kept on iterating, kept on iterating, and then. And hiring great editors is a key. Really great editors. Because specifically for my book, I had to keep it simple enough. It was really complex um, topic. And I'd had, and instead of going all the way down the rabbit hole on all of these different pieces, I had to weave a theme together over top of, and touch the tops of the waves to see what was really like. Because this is a system change book. Yeah, yeah, okay. And that was hard. That was hard. No kidding. So, so hiring great, really great editors who could be honest with me and say, "This, this just you got to cut this whole thing and turn it into in, into something else." That 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 really helped with that process. Well, if I go down this path, they might hit you up for an intro there. Then, yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd be ha happy to. It's a and the, probably the best thing about writing a book that I totally discounted is how much I learned through the process. Yeah, and then. And then, then what ended up happening, because to put your words into that thought, you have to, in, 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 you have to get to a point that you can easily explain something. And then more so, by writing the book, what it did to the amount of people racing to me that I learned at an even greater rate. So most of the learning hmm. came as a result of writing the book. Yeah, that's interesting. And, and yeah. that, was, that was a huge unknown benefit. That uh, that I actually cannot believe. I I can't believe the types of people that what I, or what I get to do today and, the, and what I've learned and the people I meet every day as a result of writing that book. I can't believe it. I I can believe it. I mean, I yeah, I because I, I I was such a fan of your book and know how much traction it got. Those numbers on Amazon are phenomenal. You know, it it so it does two things. What you shared it reinforces my conviction to write a book and simultaneously uh, sort of puts it on blast a little bit because first of all. I'm the biggest benefactor of my YouTube channel. I'm the biggest benefactor of my podcast. I'm the biggest benefactor of my newsletter for exactly the reasons you just discussed. I learn the most because I have to create the content. I get to have conversations with people like you and then regurgitate it in my own words for my newsletter. And I learn the most and my network grows the most. And, and therefore, you know, it kind of like self-perpetuates into a greater and greater thing. That's what makes me so curious about the, the takeaway from authoring a book and you know, the, the driver behind like the why, because you said, you know, don't do it for you, do it if you know why. And that's where I was like, does it put my conviction on blast? Because I feel like I want to do this because I love to write and I love to communicate. Simultaneously, I feel very troubled. And like a lot of the 
motivation behind the content I create is that we are suffering from some mass inability to debate. And I'm seeing this through all the communities that surround me. And I find myself often with very close friends these days, kind of censoring maybe what I want to share because we've become, and I hang out with a pretty libertarian, like hard charging entrepreneur crowd, yet like more and more frequently, there's concepts that are just off the table if they oppose the common viewpoint. And what's lost on people is that like, if you and I debate a topic and you just smash me and disprove everything I think, I'm the winner there, aren't I? Because I just learned, right? Like I identified my blind spots. I grew out of this, right? And and a lot of people don't debate in a way to do that. They look to smash their person. And here's something that will help anybody listening to this. What somebody says about you, about your idea and everything else, it's not that thing that hurts. It's the thing that, because they made you smarter and you, they were right. They're an idiot. And, and then why would you care? Mm. Why would you care? Um, uh, or they're just trying to bait you. And why would you care? So, mm. so if you just look at all those reactions, I actually don't know. You can imagine what I see on Twitter. And so, so most of it's un, unbelievable or, or comments. On, you can imagine what I see uh, um, on that from a minority of people trying to get it. But, but again, nothing can hurt me except for my feelings of it. And most of that is we lash back because of our own ego, trying to say, no, we're this person. And it's, 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 it's a useless waste of time because if the idea has merit, then the idea has merit and, you, and, and then you lean in. Mm-hmm. It's not about you, but everybody makes it about them. Yes, because right or wrong, that idea is not your identity. The same as exactly. politics are not your identity. Not your right? identity. Yeah. Oh, it's so important. And uh, okay. So I know you're out of time. I'll stop. We'll, <laughs> we'll cap it here. We'll do, we'll do it again soon. Uh, yeah. I, I love spending the time with you, Jay. Awesome. Likewise, man. Okay. Have an awesome day. And, uh, and I can't wait to do this again. All right. Yeah, thanks. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor. Follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.